you would please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 28. We've done it, gang. We have reached the final chapter in the book of Acts. Uh, I know this is not a venture that you chose. It was chosen for you. Uh, But thank you for being so patient. I, I was curious, and so I went back and looked, and the very first sermon... I preached on Acts, was preached March 14th of 2021. Um, So thank you uh, for being so patient. Uh, I'm going to divide Acts 28 into thirds. First uh, third today, and then we'll have two more Sundays, and that will have us finishing the book of Acts in May. And from there... The plan is to move into a seven-part summer series on the prophet Micah. So that's where we will be this summer. But today, we're going to look at the first ten verses of Acts 28 together. And as we open, I want you to just just think about this. You, You have a man of God chosen to bring a specific message to a specific people. And he gets on a ship, sails out into the Mediterranean. The ship gets caught in a storm. Everyone on board abandons hope. Everyone, those seasoned mariners think this is the end. That a watery grave is a foregone conclusion. This storm shows no signs of subsiding. And then the man of God stands up and speaks. And he says, don't despair. You will live. Because this is all my fault. Throw me into the sea. And so they do. They throw him overboard and the storm ceases and they are not drowned. And the man of God is swallowed by a fish. Now I hope I got you there. Aren't these two stories of Jonah and Paul, they're close and yet perplexing when you compare them. Right? Jonah is the prophet who speaks on behalf of God. The word of the Lord comes to him and tells him to go to a great city, to Nineveh. Preach that they might turn from their sins to life. But what does Jonah do? He goes in the complete opposite direction. He's told to head east to go to Nineveh, which is found in modern-day Iraq, but instead he gets on a ship heading for Spain. Now, I hope that even if you aren't great with geography, you can understand that he's told to go this way, and he goes that way. And so he gets on board the ship, Sailing through the waters of the Mediterranean, what happens? The Lord hurled a wind upon him. A wind so great, everyone on board is despairing for their life. And as readers, we can look at the events found in the book of Jonah and clearly see that the storm and then the three days that follow In the belly of the fish, this is the discipline of God on Jonah. He's being sternly reproved 
Because he disobeyed the Lord. And this makes total sense to us. But what about Paul? He too is a man of God. He too brought with him words of life. He's a man the Lord Jesus visited while he was imprisoned in Jerusalem back in Acts 23. The Lord tells him, take courage just as you've testified about me and my person and my work and my resurrection. You must also testify in Rome. All right, we've got some pretty close parallels. But here's where they diverge. Paul wants to go to his great city. He, he would have gone earlier if he could have, but he'd been delayed in Caesarea. And now, unlike Jonah, he's headed straight where God told him to go. And he's excited. You can read words that he'd written to the Romans just a few years earlier where he says to them, I hope to see you and be helped on my journey enjoying your company. Pray that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. That's what Paul is saying to the Romans. That's his heart and his desire. It's the polar opposite of Jonah. And yet Paul, like Jonah, has trouble at sea. We saw this in the previous chapter. Luke says, we sailed slowly for a number of days with difficulty. The wind did not allow us to go further. The storm hits. The storm that threatens them and carries this ship helpless for two weeks until the ship is driven on a reef and broken to pieces. And the whole number of those on board are forced to enter those cold, stormy waters. And now they're stranded on a tiny island in the middle of the Mediterranean. They're cold, they're wet, and oh, by the way, Paul is about to be bitten by a poisonous snake. And, and the question that naturally comes to my mind, a question that may naturally come to your mind is, why, Lord? I mean, don't you think at some point in this whole ordeal, Paul may have asked that question, Lord, I'm willing and ready to go to Rome. But your providence seems to be actively working against me getting there. Think of Paul's companions, Luke and Aristarchus. They surely had the same questions. Lord, this is a strange providence. We know why you hurled the storm on Jonah. Why did you hurl the storm on us and then beach us on this tiny island? We were trying to go the very place the Lord Jesus told us to go. Why is Paul, why are we experiencing this hard providence when we are trying to walk in obedience and faithfulness? Why are there so many dangers, toils, and snares on the path of obedience? There's a lesson for us here. And it's this. We can enter by the narrow gate. 
we can take the path of obedience and we can still encounter hard providences. Jesus speaks of this narrow way in Matthew 7. He says, The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. There is no health and wealth theology here. There is no belief that you will be healthy and wealthy if you are only faithful enough. Friends, do not be shocked or confused when you are seeking obedience. When you are attempting to walk on this right, narrow path and you find it filled with trials and sorrows and difficulties. We see that in the life of the Apostle Paul, and we see it in the life of the brilliant Christian hymn writer, William Cooper. He's on my mind because of some reading I'm doing personally. Cooper was best friends with John Newton, who's the pastor who wrote Amazing Grace for his tiny little congregation in a town called Olney. And his friend Cooper had been given a mind of poetic genius, but also a mind that suffered from severe mental illness. And we're reminded that for the believer, the way is hard that leads to life. Let's uh, pray together before we read our text. Father God, we thank you for your word. We uh, ask that you would speak to us through it. And uh, Father, with our dear brother in the faith, uh, William Cooper, I'm, I'm reminded of his words and pray that they would be true for us as well. Um, that, we would, that we would be those who, uh, from a clear conscience, could also echo and say, God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps on the sea, And rides upon the storm. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter, and He will make it plain. God, through the reading and preaching of Your Word, would You cultivate within us Not blind unbelief, but faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. I'm going to read the first ten verses of Acts 28. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. 
They were waiting for him to swell up and suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You know, there are some lessons for us here. We remember that nothing God does is meaningless. We, we aren't atheists. We aren't those forced uh, to conclude that the universe uh, is, was made for nothing and is going nowhere, right? We believe that God has a purpose in all he does, and he works all things together for his glory and for the good of those who love him. And I think we see that in this text. We ended chapter 27 with the absolute miracle of all 276 people surviving this shipwreck. I just it, it is a miracle that no one drowned. No one was swept out to sea in the current. No one who was clinging to a, a piece of floating debris was swamped by a wave. And we're reminded again that God always keeps his word. We, we just confessed, you just confessed, that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And not only does it stand forever, but it stands as true and right and good. We see these 276 wet people standing on the beach, and we see that God keeps his promises, and we can trust him. There's something here in this first verse that you may miss uh, if, if you don't know the meaning of Malta. In verse 28.1, we read, After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. That's, that's significant because they would have learned the meaning of the name Malta. Malta was an island that was, uh, it was, uh, oh man, what's the, settled. It's an island that was settled by the Phoenicians, and the Phoenicians are the ones who gave it its name. And the name, uh, well, the Phoenician word was Maleth, but translated, it would mean shelter or refuge. Can you imagine them being safely brought through? We learned, what's the name of this island? Refuge. Shelter. I mean, I can just imagine Paul's company. They have no idea where they are. They've lost all their bearings. They've lost sight of the sun and the stars. And they're washed up on this island. And they learn its name is Refuge. Just imagine Paul chuckling and saying, well, that makes total sense. I mean, there's a handful of 
psalms he could quote, right? Psalm 62. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. After everything they've been through, wouldn't it make sense that they land on an island called refuge? Well, the Lord's providence, well, his, his provision uh, continues for them. Uh, these soaked refugees are given favor in the eyes of the people and the locals. They're all on shore. They're cold and wet. I think all it takes is your body temp dropping below 95 degrees for you to become hypothermic. So they aren't out of the woods just yet. But what happens? The native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Think about this. These local Maltese, they have no idea who Paul is. They have no idea who it is, who this man is who's standing in their presence. They have no idea that this is an apostle. This is one that the Lord Jesus, the creator of all things, has visited on more than one occasion. And they show him hospitality. It, it provokes in my memory the words written in Hebrews 13. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I'm going to be quoting Charles Haddon Spurgeon on several occasions today. And the first quote comes here. He comments saying, These people of Malta never dreamed they were entertaining an apostle. And it never entered their heads that their act, simple act of hospitality would be recorded in the sacred scriptures. And that millions of eyes would read of this kind act of theirs on behalf of the shipwrecked company. They really entertained an angel unawares, and they had many blessings in consequence. We're going to get to those blessings in just a moment. But there's an exhortation here for us to be welcoming and generous and hospitable, not knowing who it is the Lord will put in our path. There's something else the Maltese learn, and it's something of suffering, and that things are not always as they appear. In verse 3, I read it about this snake, and it just makes me think, when is Paul going to get a break? After everything he's gone through, he finally gets on dry land trying to warm himself by a fire and he reaches out to grab a stick and throw it on the fire and it turns out the the stick was a snake. It bites him on the hand. Now, the locals see this and what do they assume? Well, they assume the natural human... Reasoning. This man must must be a murderer. 
This man must have done something terrible. This man escaped the sea, but he, his nine lives ran out with this serpent. Justice caught him. What might we call that today? Karma. You do something bad, the universe will get you back. You do something bad, something bad will happen in return. Paul deserves this, you see. That's what they think. And so they're sitting around waiting for him to puff up and die. But does Paul deserve this? I mean, what have we seen in Job over the the months we've been reading through it? His friends keep telling him, you must have done something bad, Job. To bring this upon yourself. Bad things don't just happen to good people. And Job says, I haven't done anything. Sometimes the godly are humbled by affliction. We see that in Job. We also see it in the story of John 9. You remember the disciples see a man outside of the temple, a man born blind, and they ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. They're thinking someone must have done something bad. Maybe God foresaw that this man would do something bad and so he caused him to be born blind. Maybe his parents sinned in some way and so God punished the parents by blinding the child. Lord, which is it? And Jesus said, neither. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We see that blind man in John 9 would go on to profess faith in Jesus and worship him. It's about the glory of God being displayed. We see something similar here. Paul doesn't die, but what happens? Well, verse 6 When they saw that no misfortune came to Paul, they changed their minds. He's not a murderer. He's not a criminal. He must be a god. In their confusion, they swing from one extreme to another. And I'm sure that Paul was very quick to correct them and tell them he was only a servant of the one true God and he was the least of the apostles. But the lesson here is that we need to be very careful. We see this in the Maltese people. We see it with Jesus' disciples in John 9. That things are not always as simple as they may seem when it comes to suffering. I found a quote from Calvin in my reading that I found helpful. I wanted to share it with you. He says, quote, It has been the common view... In all ages, that people who are punished severely must have offended badly. This idea was not entirely unjustified, but came from a true feeling of godliness. In order to leave the world without any excuse, God wanted to impress on everyone that calamity and adversity and extraordinary disasters in particular are signs of his wrath against sins. But people have almost always made the mistake of blaming all those, without exception, who seem to be suffering badly. 
God always punishes people's sins with adversity, but he does not punish everyone according to his deserts in this life. And sometimes the afflictions of the godly are not so much punishments as tests of their faith and exercises in endurance. End quote. I found that interesting. That because God made us and made us his image bearers, there's something in all of us, no matter where you are, no matter your context, that, that inside you, you understand that suffering and disasters are signs of God's wrath against sin. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world groaning to be made new, a world where there is calamity and trouble because of sin that has its origins in Eden. But we need to be careful in rushing to judgments when it comes to people we don't know because as we see with Job and Paul, things are not always what they appear to be. We don't have all the information. We don't know the scope of God's plan. Very quickly, I want to say a word that believers should rejoice in our sufferings. Because ultimately, within you and me, do you know what sufferings produce? They produce hope. Hope in God. Hope in a better world that's coming. Paul writes in Romans 5, he says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Suffering produces a, a hope that all things will be made right in heaven. There is a one day, someday, that by God's power and might, all things will be made new. And don't you love this? You have a snake clinging to Paul's hand, doing nothing. And yet that snake is shook off. And where does it fall? Into the fire. It's the one day, someday hope of the believer. Not only that we will be with our Lord, but that our great enemy who cannot hurt us because of the work of Christ will be shook off into the fire, never to trouble the people of God ever again. Suffering produces that hope in the believer. In our final verses, we're introduced to the chief man of Malta, a man named Publius. And he welcomed them and cared for their needs just as his citizens had on the beach. It appears that the snake bite must have reached his ears. And uh, he's in need of a miracle himself. In verse 8, we're told that his father lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. We aren't told a magical formula that Paul recited. We aren't told an incantation. We're simply told Paul went and saw him, laid his hands on him, 
prayed for him. And God healed this man. You know, I want to ask the purpose. And I'm convinced that the purpose behind this healing is that a foundation is being laid. A foundation on which Paul would preach the gospel. The purpose of healing this father isn't just that he would be granted another 5, 10, or 15 years of life. He was healed so that he might be prepared to hear and receive news of a greater eternal life that is found in trusting and hiding oneself in the work of Christ. And the whole island witnesses this power. After Publius's father is healed, the rest of the people on the island, everyone who had diseases, came and were cured. The foundation for their belief is laid as well. And I have this image in my mind of Paul out of doors, healing these men and women and children, and then directing their sight out into the bay and pointing to the wreckage of that ship stuck on the reef and saying, this is a picture of what my God has done for sinners. He himself was wrecked and suffered judgment so that all who would trust in him would be brought safely to a place of refuge. I want to end with this. We talked earlier about the the blessings that come to these people. And I was talking through this sermon with Molly this week, as I often do, and she was helpful, as she often is. And she pulled out her study Bible, her, her Spurgeon study Bible, and inspired me with these quotes. I wanted to tell you this 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 one from Spurgeon where he says, Happy island of Malta, to have such a missionary driven onto its shore. The calamities of ministers are often a benediction to the people. Paul's shipwreck resulted in blessings to that island that otherwise it would have missed. Let us, as God's servants, leave ourselves in his hands. And believe that he can sometimes use us better by means of a shipwreck than if he had given the winds and waves charge concerning us to bear us safely to our desired haven. You see, the Lord could have given Paul smooth sailing, one-way non-stop passage to Rome. But no blessing would have come to Malta. No light of Christ would have come to Malta. No foundation of the gospel. No good news of hope. No healing of temporal illness. Paul was better used by this shipwreck. And so are you. This is a revolutionary, counterintuitive thought. How about when you suffer... When we suffer, what, what happens most? Everyone's attention turns to us and we, we want it and we want to receive it. What if when we suffer, we say, how might my suffering 
be a blessing and an encouragement to my neighbor. There's another quote. I didn't get this one from Molly, but it's another Spurgeon quote. It's on my door, which is why I thought of it. It's just a sentence. And he says, I've learned to kiss the waves that slam me against the rock of ages. Why? We kiss the wave because it produces hope within us. Hope of a better one day, someday, when we will no longer sin and the snake will be shook off into the fire. We kiss the wave because it's a blessing to our neighbor. As Spurgeon said, the calamities of the ministers are often a word of peace, a benediction to the people. These waves are blessings to our neighbors. And lastly, we kiss the wave because they help us to see that Christ is our all. He is all we have. He is all we need. Let's pray. Father God, may it be so. May we be those who see clearly the Christian life. May we be those who clearly see what it is to follow Christ. And that the narrow way that leads to life is a way that is hard. May we hear the words of our Lord who said, In this world you will have trouble. Yet, Lord, this is the way of the cross. This is what it means that we take up our cross daily. We rejoice in our suffering remembering the hope it produces. We have our neighbor, our brothers and sisters in in mind. We ask how we might be a blessing to them. And lastly, when everything else is stripped away, we can be those who can say, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Father, uh, produce this within us. Strengthen this within us. This hope that we have in your Son. And we ask this all in his name. Amen. Our final hymn of response is found in your bullets and insert. All must be well. Will you stand and join me in singing? Thank <laughs> you.